Hi, Lloyd. In a way, but now I'm back. Good evening, Mr. Torrance. It's good to see you. It's good to be back, Lloyd. What would be so? Hair of the Dog That Bit Me, a shining retrospective series podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Arnie. Part of their Stephen King retrospective series. That'll do her. No charge to you, Mr. Torrance. No charge? Your money's no good here. Orders from the house. Say, Lloyd, I'm the kind of man who likes to say up front this podcast series will have spoilers and harsh language. Thank you for saying so. And these podcasts, they're coming out each week at nowplayingpodcast.com? It's not a matter that concerns you, Mr. Torrance. At least not at this point. Anything you say, Lloyd. Anything you say. What say we take a listen now? Today we're discussing Stephen King's The Shining, starring Rebecca De Mornay, Stephen Weber, Will Horniff, Melvin Van Peebles, and Cortland Mead, directed by Mick Garris. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I, I feel like I was meant to be here, that somehow my whole life has led up to this. <laughs> Stuart in L.A., this is Jacob, and guys, I- I'm glad to be here because podcasting, podcasting brings the joy that's everlasting. <laughs> uh, it took me a second to get that one, but yeah, there are, there's that catchy little phrase. I'm sure we'll be talking about oh. it again. Mm. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you don't let your, know what you're missing. <laughs> you're missing four and a half hours of Stephen King's The Shining. I mean, we talked last week. When we reviewed the Kubrick film, which I don't think I'm going out on too narrow a beam here when I call it a film classic, but King never quite saw it that way. He started off saying that it netted a zero, but as time went on, his opinion got a little worse to the point that by 1983, very soon after the original, (laughs) he was already saying he would like to remake it. Well, you know, that's probably as the esteem for the movie grew. Think about it. Shining came out. A lot of people were mystified. It got bad reviews. It got Razzie nominations. I think it took a while for it to grow. But probably what bugged him was that eventually he was probably hearing people repeatedly say this is one of the cases where the movie was better than the book. As the reputation for Kubrick Shining grew, so did King's disdain for it. I know there's some personal pride with authors. I, I've seen this, you know, at Comic-Con, talking to Mike McNola, and, you know, he loves Hellboy. That's his creation. So when they make little tweaks, you can tell it kind of annoyed him with those movies. But King takes that up to a whole next level. I could see, well, people, uh, I really like this part about The Shining. Well, that that's not from the book. That's just from that movie. I, I could see him this really eating at him. It's a, it's a weird personal vendetta that, that he had and I think still has for that film. And I can understand where he's coming from, though. While I agree with both of you that this story, if you heard my Books and Nachos review of the book, he considers it the most autobiographical book he's written. He really can empathize with the struggles of Jack Torrance. And I think that when you take Jack Torrance and make him Jack Nicholson, 
King is heartbroken because it's not the personal story he was telling. And he did say in multiple interviews that especially at the height of his drinking and drugs, he was basically running from the fact and trying to live up to the fact that he was Stephen King, author of The Shining. It didn't matter how many copies Firestarter or It sold, he was Stephen King, author of The Shining. And so if that's the title he's most well-known for, but the version that's most well-known isn't his, I can get where he's coming from in that he's probably way too close to it to be rational. And again, I did go back. I, I played it on audiobook. I didn't give it my full attention. I played it while I had time at work or in long car drives or what have you. But I re-familiarized myself with the King narrative. It's very different. And I have come around to seeing that, yes, there's room for two Shinings. I before thought this was heresy. When I heard they were going to make this as a TV miniseries, I thought it was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. I mean, why would you ever set yourself up for failure like that? But now, recognizing what wasn't told in the Kubrick version, I think it's fair to say that, yeah, 17 years later, there's probably room for a new telling. A Stephen King version. I kind of agree, but by the same token, it's almost like Casablanca or Citizen Kane, isn't it? The Shining cast such a long shadow that even though it had been 17 years since Kubrick's was out there, it was still in heavy rotation on movie channels, it was still getting midnight showings at cinemas, I saw it in theaters in the mid-90s. This is something that would be compared, and yes, I agree, there's much room for two Great versions of The Shining, King's book and Kubrick's film, but any other film you make is now going to be compared with both. And that is a tricky proposition. You've got to give the guys who would take on such a challenge credit for having really big balls. Well, it's King himself, right, that takes this challenge. I mean, I noticed on that credit for this miniseries, his name's all over. Producer, teleplay writer, Stephen King's The Shining, based on Stephen King's The Shining. I mean, it's all <laughs> over it. He's the guy. I mean, he's the one. Again, this is like a personal vendetta he has against Kubrick to get this made. <laughs> I would have figured he'd put Alan Smithy on this by the end of it, but hey, whatever. If he's proud, I'm not going to say nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs> So how did it happen? Warner Brothers made this, so they must have retained the rights. Or or did Kubrick have the rights? Kubrick had the rights. So deals had to be made. What happened was, and I really want to contextualize this, because there's so much that was going on in the mid-90s. But in 94, King had The Stand, which was his most well-known, top-rated ABC miniseries. It wasn't the first. There'd been some before with It. The stand was the watermark, so they continued doing it. After the stand, a couple years later, they did the Langoliers. We will eventually get to that one. That one's way off in our future, but Whew. not too long before the one we're reviewing tonight. And the Langoliers didn't do so well. So ABC went to King and said, what would you like to do? What should we do to get something that's as big of a ratings hit as the stand? And King being given carte blanche on what to do, said The Shining. And so they then had to make that happen, and they pretty much gave King a blank check to do what had to be done. And so they had to go to Kubrick, who retained all sequel and remake rights, and as it was described, he was given a hefty, hefty check. Hmm. So he could be bought and was, 
Yeah, but I've read it wasn't just a check that King had to write out. There, there is more to that agreement. Maybe the pound of flesh? What? There was a stipulation in the contract. Now, I have copiously researched King for my books and nachos and these podcasts. I have heard from some sources that ABC put this in King's contract. I have heard this from some sources that Kubrick put it in King's contract. But King was agreeing to no longer badmouth the Kubrick version. Oh, really? A gag order. Could he not speak about it at all, or did he, did he have to lie and say, oh, it's fine, if someone asked him? Well, he was asked in the 90s about it in an interview, and he said that for the first time in a long time, he watched Kubrick's adaptation and found it to be dreadfully unsettling. All of a sudden, he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I see. In recent days, with the release of Dr. Sleep, again, King is being asked repeatedly about Kubrick's The Shining, which differs very much from his original book, and he was faced with writing a sequel to his original book and having more people be picking it up as a sequel to Kubrick's film, and so he's had to again address it, and maybe the gag order died when Kubrick did, maybe King's just rich enough not to give a fuck, but he's now not so fond of The Shining once again. <laughs> Kubrick's version. <laughs> I read that. A friend pointed it out to me because she knew we were doing Stephen King and she's reading that sequel to The Shining. And he does take a little, make a little, you know, jab at Kubrick once again. So with all that done, they did get Mick Garris. How did they get him? <laughs> Poor Mick Garris. I have some sympathy for this man. I mean, think about it. He had to make Psycho 4. Right? He had to follow in Hitchcock's footsteps. Now he's got to follow in Kubrick's footsteps. And he's got to answer to Stephen King. I think his entire career after Psycho 4 was just adapting Stephen King works. Poor guy. Not entirely. He did have some other stuff that he worked on. But his most well-known stuff is Stephen King. He was also attached to Clive Barker's remake of Universal Pictures' The Mummy that never happened. But the real trick here wasn't getting McGarish, you're right. It was getting anybody to star as Jack Torrance. <laughs> they didn't accomplish that, did they? <laughs> no, they got somebody. The star, though? <laughs> they really had to search. I mean, they were thinking they could bring back Gary Sinise, who had starred in The Stand. The Stand helped really launch Gary Sinise, and then Forrest Gump solidified him as a movie star. They were approaching him... They approached so many people, and nobody wanted to take on the role of Jack Torrance because it would be so compared with Jack Nicholson. And they were about to shut down production of this. They were four days away from filming. They didn't have a Jack Torrance. What? Wow, that's crazy. I mean, I know that these casting problems happen all the time, but not to have your lead? and it's less than a week, that is hair-raising. What, was Stephen King going to play the part? <laughs> I would have loved that. Well, one of the people who they'd really pursued, your guess is as good as mine as to why, was Tim Daly. And he's done some drama stuff, but primarily known as the lead actor on Wings. And when he absolutely refused to take the Jack Nicholson part, I don't know if it was a favor or a practical joke, but he goes, how about my Wings <laughs> co-star, Steven Weber? <laughs> I must confess, I have never seen an episode of Wings. I know it was created by the people that 
made Cheers, and I liked Cheers, and I watched Cheers, but this one was like, it was a channel flipper. I'm like, oh, that was a good episode of Cheers. What's on next? Wings? All right, <laughs> click. What's on the other network? Never watched it. I actually have watched Wings. It was on, you know, when I was in college, it was on USA, right between when I get home from my first round of classes in the morning, come home, have some lunch, watch an hour of Wings on USA, and then go to my afternoon classes. What cracks me up is, yeah, it's about these two brothers that run this airline. There's the serious brother. They couldn't get him, so they got the comedic one to play this Jack (laughs) Torrance character. That's the crazy thing. And I've also seen quite a bit of Wings. It was on after Cheers and before Night Court or Frasier or Friends. It was in that Thursday night block between shows I liked more. And so I'd watch it, and it was amusing. And really, there are some great actors who came out of there, like Tony Shalhoub and Thomas Hayden Church and Stephen Weber. I think I've only seen him in one movie. It was a thriller from the early 90s called Single White Female, and he actually gets killed with a stiletto heel of a shoe through the eye. It was my one memory of him, so I don't know if that qualifies him to be the star of The Shining or not, but uh, no real impression other than Steven Weber is not a heavy hitter when, if you want a dramatic actor, and I would think you'd want a really great actor stepping into an iconic part like this. He really wanted this role. He was fighting for this role. He was calling his agent for it. He, hell, for all I know, he was bugging Tim Daly, too, going, hey, th- I know they want you. Give them me, you know, kind of like <laughs> when your roommate's dating the girl you want. But Wings was winding down. Wings would end around the same time that The Shining would air. He was known for comedic acting. I think he wanted to show the world He wasn't just the goofy pilot from Wings and that there was more to him. So this was his way of trying to do that. Okay. (laughs) But that said, he might not have gone about it in the smartest of ways. He had was not a fan of horror, not a fan of Stephen King, never read the book. And in the commentary, he did do a commentary for the DVD release of this that came out in the early 2000s. And he said, I'm a fan of Jack Nicholson. But I actually forgot he had played this role before. <laughs> what a fan. Oh, sure. Yeah. Who would remember this movie? No, no, no clue. What, what did he just like take a pill and wake up and it was 1991? <laughs> I mean, did he miss the entire eighties? I mean, I think everyone knows if you know a Jack Nicholson movie, you know that he hears Johnny coming through the door. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Well, I could see it. I could see being so focused on a role and wanting to show dramatic chops on what should be a huge ABC success. Again, the stand is still in everybody's memory when this is being done, that he's looking at career opportunities and not even thinking about what came before. I could almost believe that. (laughs) I can't, but okay. Yeah, props to him for being able to try. i Glad that he had the guts to go for it. You're right. It's the kind of role that's either going to put you on a different level or it's, it'll kill your career. But it's it's a risk that you take to be perceived in a different way. Why not? He had nothing to lose. If the show was ending, yeah, why not? And really, he did have nothing to lose because I did mention the DVD release. There was another stipulation that they had to make with the Kubricks in order to do this. And that was no home video release in the U.S., This was not going to be released here. It was to be shown on ABC twice, 
And then if people want to go rent The Shining, they're renting Kubrick's. Again, that deal seems to have changed as I am holding a Region 1 USA, or I'm sorry, actually Canada, (laughs) DVD set here, but still Region 1. I actually watched some of this miniseries when it aired back in 97. And taking for granted that, like The Stand, it would be put out on DVD, I'm like, I'm not going to watch any more of this. I'll catch it later. It was never released. I ended up buying an import of a VCD. If you guys remember VCDs, the precursor to DVDs. Early days of bootlegging for me, yes. Yes, I bought a VCD copy of this for way too much money on eBay so I could have both versions of The Shining in my Stephen King movie library. This is why I'm the fan, folks. (laughs) Because I did that before now playing. Yeah. But now it is out. I still keep that VCD around, not only as a memory of my not-so-bright early 20s, but also because it's the only way to see this thing full frame. It was not filmed letterbox. 1997, TV was 4 to 3 ratio. When they did the DVDs, they know people are wanting their widescreen TVs filled, so they actually cropped it down. That's why people's foreheads are cut off in most of the shots. Hmm. I did see this briefly, vaguely, in parts when it came out. I remember being kind of darkly amused that they were going to attempt this. I thought it was foolhardy, particularly since I had seen part of the Langoliers. I'll say the rest of that for when we get there, but oof. That's going to be one of the worst, I think. Just one of the very worst, and so... I hope you still think that when we get there. (laughs) I know! I may be thinking that everyone is the worst until I experience the next one. Who knows? I I haven't seen a lot of Night Shift, so there's a learning curve there. But I saw a couple nights. I had two images in my head when I thought about it. It was lawn animals attacking and a fire hose that had teeth or something. I couldn't (laughs) quite remember anything more about it than that. But that would have been all I could have told you before I watched it again for this podcast. And I didn't see this when it was on TV. I had no idea this even existed until we started preparing for this Shining podcast and figuring out what we we're going to watch. I, I had no idea. That, that just seemed like blasphemy to me, that ridiculous. That, why would you even try to do this? But here we are. They've tried it, and we're here to review it. So, Arnie, why don't you tell them? What is Stephen King's The Shining? It's so nice, unlike Salem's Lot and Carrie, to have a plot summary that is actually vastly different. Jack Torrance is not just down on his luck, he's at his last chance. His wife almost left him when in a drunken rage he broke his son Danny's arm, but he went to AA and stopped drinking. But then he had a sober rage when he caught one of his students slashing his tires and beat the crap out of that boy, which made him lose his job as a teacher. But thanks to one of his former drinking buddies who's also stopped drinking, Jack has gotten a job as winter caretaker of the Overlook Hotel. For the seven months of winter, Jack... His wife, Wendy, and his son will live in this hotel, cut off from civilization by the snowy roads, with the tasks of emptying the boiler and doing minor repairs. Jack sees it as a good time to work on his play, and he hopes to end the winter with a completed play and more prospects in life. But his son's seven-year-old Danny is not as optimistic. The boy is psychic and has visions from a teenaged boy named Tony who tells Danny to not go to the Overlook. Despite the apparition's objections, Danny knows his daddy needs the job and keeps quiet. Upon arriving at the Overlook, Danny meets the cook, Dick Halloran, who instantly recognizes the youngster's mental powers. In a private conversation, Dick tells the boy he has the shine, and is the most powerful psychic Dick has ever met. And he knows he has the shining too. 
Dick also warns the boy about bad things in the hotel that some have seen, but they're like pictures in a book, he says, and they can't hurt Danny. Still, Dick warns Danny to stay out of the guest rooms over the winter before Dick leaves to have a season in Florida. But not too long into their stay, things start to go wrong. Jack is stung by wasps, and then the dead wasps seem to come back to life to sting Danny, and Jack's temperament grows short. Meanwhile, Danny sees macabre and scary visions. Jack soon discovers in the basement reams of documents telling of the Overlook's past, and its ownership by Horace DeWent, and the murders that occurred in the hotel. Soon, Jack begins to see these ghosts himself, who offer him alcohol and convince him to kill his wife and son. See, the ghosts are made stronger by Danny's psychic powers, and if Danny dies, they'll be even stronger still. The ghosts try to manifest and attack Danny with hedge animals, but when that fails, they corrupt Jack and take him over. <laughs> Send in the drunk! <laughs> the lawn sod ain't working! <laughs> Danny, scared, calls out to Dick in Florida, who rushes back to Colorado in the worst snowstorm in ten years. But Jack does grab a croquet mallet and beats his wife. <laughs> I'm sorry. An axe would just be, what, too too violent? Not ready for prime time? How do you croquet mallet someone to death? That would take a very long time. Then Dick, and then goes after Danny. But Danny is reminded by Tony that Jack hasn't dumped the boiler. Danny reminds the ghost-possessed Jack, who goes down and empties the boiler, but Danny is able to psychically break through the hold the ghosts have on Jack, and Jack closes the boiler again. Danny, Dick, and Wendy all flee the hotel while the boiler blows up, taking Jack and the Overlook with it. And then we flash forward ten years, and Wendy and Dick are at Danny's high school graduation, and we see Daniel Anthony Torrance, a teenager who looks identical to Tony, and teenage Danny is congratulated on his graduation by the ghost of his father. <laughs> Danny is blown a kiss as credits roll. <laughs> like the boiler, both of you exploded at the end. Oh, I did! I watched it! <laughs> I had to bite off my tongue to get through that. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Cooper not that scary. Kissing, kissing. <laughs> that's what I've been missing. Terrifying. There is something really embarrassing about someone screaming about a work of art and saying they could do better, and then the hand and finger paint. I mean... <laughs> I'm not going to hide my review here up front. And this has nothing to do with the Kubrick comparatives. It goes without saying that this movie doesn't hold a candle to the Stanley Kubrick shining. I'm embarrassed that he would even have it released. I'm stunned. I remember this movie not being good, and wow. It's not just that it doesn't live up to Kubrick. I don't think it lives up to maximum overdrive. <laughs> King can be his own worst enemy. It should be said, although he's had great success on the page, when he actually tries to write for the screen or direct, it really does not go well. I am the King fan on this podcast, but even I have to admit, he has mixed success. Not all of his books are tremendous, and when he starts working on the screen, as we're going to find out for the next five years of our life... He doesn't always do that well either. Now, this is a script he wrote, and he was omnipresent here. 
Jacob, you said his names are all over the credits. He was all over the set. I feel from listening to the conversations that he and Mick Garris have a great friendship. They've been friends for many years. They'd known each other for five or six years by the time this even got started. But I also feel that there's a hierarchy and Mick Garris knows who the star is. And if King says jump, Mick Garris says how high. And that the equation that came to my mind is Stephen King is to McGarris on The Shining as Steven Spielberg was to Toby Hooper on Poltergeist. Oh, that's interesting. I thought it was Stephen King is to McGarris what that man sitting on the bed was to the guy in the dog mask in the Kubrick film. <laughs> but... <laughs> go on we each have our own comparatives and truthfully king's stake in this cannot be overstated let's also remember abc was a very different network in 1997 than it was in 1994 having been bought by disney in 1994 it was its own network and could do risky programming like the stand with an apocalyptic vision of earth here, they were kind of in a conundrum because they realized that Stephen King was one of the network's biggest stars. He may only do miniseries every couple of years, but they were huge miniseries. They were event programming ratings grabbers. But they didn't really want a show about a guy trying to kill his kid. <laughs> and they kept going to King and ABC, again, I think because of the Disney ownership, was one of the only networks to actually have in writing rules for their standards and practices such as a child must never be put in danger on our shows. Mm. And King would just simply say, okay, then I walk. And because he was such a big star, I mean, he was as big as Roseanne to ABC in the 90s. Disney backed down and they made his vision with only some cuts. Now, I do want to say there were some cuts. They weren't just for violent reasons. A couple were. As filmed and originally edited, this was about 40 minutes longer. Oh, my God. Was that another night? Most of it was in the <laughs> second act. They realized that they had to pace this for two hours a night. And so they cut a few minutes out of night one, a few minutes out of night three, and about a half an hour out of the second night. So as long as this is, and this is a long show... It could have been quite a bit longer if they'd done, say, a director's cut for this DVD or something. And that <laughs> makes me ask, how did you guys watch this? Because this was a miniseries. I decided I was going to treat it like a movie and watch it in one marathon sitting, an ass-numbing sitting. And the discs, though, made me think I could have broken that out. I mean, they aren't like Salem's Lot, where it is edited to feel contiguous. It ends each disc with the credit scenes for that night. Yeah, you know what? After Salem's Lot, even though I did recommend one of those TV films, sitting through those three-hour things was a bit of a chore. Wasn't going to do that again, especially now that this was a, basically another episode longer. So I watched this over three days. I broke it up. I watched each episode, as it were, on each. Well, one disc was double-sided, and then there was a third disc. I watched each one once a night, three nights in a row. I originally planned to watch it on Netflix, so it was going to be broken up because it would, I only get them one at a time. But truth of the matter is, when I actually went to go grab it, it had a long wait on it. All of a sudden, somebody else wanted to watch The Shining. I had to go buy this. So thank you, donors. <laughs> I just want to say thank you, because if it had been my money, I couldn't have done it. I would have just 
sat off of the show. I couldn't have spent money on this. <laughs> Wait, but, there's an option but, to sit but, off the show? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been called a fight, and I would have had it. But yes, because the donors remind me with their charity that it's important that I watch what we have programming, I said, all right, I will spend the $6 plus shipping it took to get this DVD. Anybody want it? I mean, it's sitting here in a box, and I'm never going to touch it again. And I'm the one who bought the European VCD for 50 bucks in <laughs> the early 2000s. I could have just shipped you that. You buy steel boxes of man thing. I think it's just your hobby to collect garbage. <laughs> but this I did not want in my home. But when I finally got it, I your question was, how long did it take me to get through? About four days. So, which is one more night than it would have aired. But, like, every time I would start, I, I kind of had my own pattern. I would watch it until I fell asleep, and then I would turn it <laughs> off and try again. <laughs> and I'm telling you, this is like video narcolepsy here. Woo! <laughs> I was falling over every ten minutes. Well, I was really interested going back to this. As I mentioned, I did watch the first night of this on ABC. I didn't remember the fire hose, Stuart. I did remember the animals, the hedge animals, from the tomorrow night on The Shining. And then I'm like, <laughs> nah, I'm not going to come back. And while I owned the VCD, I actually, and this is a guilty truth, I paid a lot of money for it and never watched it. So this was my first time seeing this whole thing from beginning to end. But I truthfully went in extraordinarily optimistic, having just reread the book. Extraordinarily optimistic? Not just optimistic? Yeah, come on. No, extraordinarily optimistic with the caveat of, well, it is Steven Weber, but I've been shocked before. <laughs> I mean, maybe he could be to this what Bronson Pinchot was to True Romance and really stun me. I think he was what Bronson Pinchot is to Perfect Strangers, but yeah, he could have been, could have been, sure. So I, having reread the book and understanding that the book was very different than Kubrick's film, I didn't expect a miniseries that could live up to the book. I knew it would be compromised because this is network TV. It's not HBO. It is TV. And I still went in thinking that because that book shines so bright for me, that this miniseries could hold up. And I honestly gave it that hope for about two and a half hours of watching. Mm. I gave it the entire first night because this is a miniseries and I... Felt like it had to be given some gimmies. And truthfully, when it starts out, I was slightly hopeful. I was a little confused at first because it starts with Jack getting the tour of the Overlook. And I knew there was a lot to come before that, a lot that happens in his life. And I wasn't sure if he was already taking ownership or how this was going. But right away, we are introduced to Jack. He's down there with Watson, and we're also being introduced to the boiler. We're introduced to everything here. It should be said, this is like exposition land. Everywhere there are boxes full of all the things that are going to explain all of the ghosts and everything that we see here. But yeah, this is where it's all being told. Yeah, someone took Chekhov's rule a little too literally here. <laughs> I haven't read the book. All I know is what Kubrick did. I'm like, okay, so the boiler's going to blow up and destroy the hotel by the end of this. <laughs> no mystery at all for me what's going to happen. It is set up in the book, but in a much less obvious way. I think that can be said about a lot of things. I mean, when 
Jack is getting the tour of the Overlook in the book. It's a very long tour, and a lot of things are pointed out, some of which are just there to set a scene, some of which are there for flavor, and some of which will pay off later. Now, reading the book I, wasn't my first time, but when they got to the boiler and talked about it creeps, I'm like, well, I bet that's going to creep to explode at the end. But I may have just remembered that somewhere in my memory. Watching it here in this movie, yeah, there's absolutely no question. It's like starting off, here we have an atomic bomb. <laughs> it's not just i mean we get this whole thing about denver croquet is this from the book is this a real thing like croquet is the least threatening sport i remember as a kid when my dad would make us we'd give us a croquet set for christmas and we had to play that damn game like dumbest sport ever this is this is going to be our pivot of horror here a croquet set <laughs> now i <laughs> I don't know why they made it Denver Croquet, which as far as <laughs> I can it's tell- it's twice as large! <laughs> does not exist. Because it's bigger! You're scared, right? It's bigger than a regular croquet mallet! It's a Denver Croquet mallet! <laughs> I thought it was in Texas that it would be bigger. We know how them Denver people play croquet, <laughs> and let me tell you, you don't mess with Denver. <laughs> You know, at least I'll give props for Stephen King for stepping outside of Maine. You know, normally all his stories are set in Maine. Clearly he needs to stay in Maine because he doesn't know anything about the other 49 states. <laughs> well, in the book, it is a mallet for Roke, which is the game that was the precursor to Croquet. But why they didn't keep it as Roke and instead made it Denver Croquet, I can honestly blame the location, I think, because Roke is played on a court. They would have had to build a Roke court at this hotel, which is the hotel where Stephen King went and got the idea for The Shining. He was driving through the mountains looking for an idea for a book. He and his wife happened to stop at a hotel and stayed just because they needed a place to stay. It was closing for the season. It was the very last night, and... When he was there, he got lost in the hotel. He'd heard about a caretaker who killed himself, and the idea for The Shining was born. And so when making this, they went back to the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, where he had the idea. That was the hotel he envisioned, so they filmed it there. Maybe the Roke Court was too expensive, and giant croquet is cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just put a bunch of hoops in the lawn. It's no worries. So, so this was this shot on location. This isn't a soundstage. This this is the real place, the real hotel. You're saying this is. I mean, we talked last time. I said that I thought that Kubrick might have had a real hotel, and you guys said it would be the most expensive film ever. Well, admittedly, Mick Garris does film quicker than Kubrick, but this <laughs> yeah. was the hotel that they booked in the winter to film, and it was all practical sets with a couple of blue screen exceptions, like when Steven Weber's on the roof, but most of the time... Wait, the interiors as well? Yes, the interiors as well. No. Yeah, they... No. Isn't that hard to believe? But it's very true. That's why some of the rooms you walk in, like, they're in that pantry, and it's like, why are they in such a cramped closet? Because that's the pantry. <laughs> That's incredible. Stanley Kubrick builds a hotel because none exists for him, and it feels like the most real thing I've ever seen. And this is the real place that inspired the book and everything that came out of it, and it looks like a cheap soundstage. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I thought this was a Motel 6 they were shooting inside at some point. I'm like, where is this grand Colorado room? Where, you know, I, I really yeah. felt 
the Overlook was supposed to be a character. Is you know, it should have some majesty to this it. This is a B and B at best. Yeah, I agree with you both because after seeing Kubrick's The Shining and all those shots in Montana, the aerial shots, I'm like, you know. I have a vacation coming up next year. Maybe I'll go there. I mean, I seriously watched Twin Peaks and decided to go visit Seattle and was just astounded by the beauty. And so I'm like, well, maybe when I see the TV version of The Shining in the real hotel, we'll go there. And then I see the hotel I'm like, <laughs> or not. <laughs> I will not be visiting the Stanley Hotel to relive The Shining experience. If Kubrick's hotel existed, I'd go there. Yeah, the Stanley Kubrick Hotel, yes. The Stanley Hotel, no. <laughs> I, I I do want to emphasize, I do like the exteriors pretty much. I thought that as a location, it was, I don't know, ominous might be too strong a word. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it had a mood. I felt like there could be a frightening story that could be told within these walls. But no, I feel like it's really inadequate. I mean, if you had shot this Kubrick style with Steadicam, you would have been bumping into walls very quickly. I mean, there was no place for a tricycle ride. It just... <laughs> You couldn't do it. There's nothing expansive about this. There's only three floors. It's all staircase. Well, Kubrick's was too. Keep that in mind. God, but it felt so different. <laughs> it's just remarkable how the setting can change everything about the way you feel. And and it's true right from the get-go. The videography, the setting, all of this. Yeah, croquet, I think that's... The death blow here, but yeah, just not the same thing. And I try. I tried to shut this off. I tried to say, not Stanley Kubrick. I think when the movie doesn't do the same scenes as Stanley Kubrick did, I can kind of forget that it's the same movie. But I don't know. Every time they're asked us to compare, Stephen King loses. I agree that when watching this, truthfully, quite honestly, I didn't think about Kubrick's film much at all. But there were two moments, one in the third episode and one in the first, where it was glaringly apparent. And it's when they're driving that red Volkswagen, King got his red yep. Volkswagen to drive up there. And what do they do? A helicopter tracking shot, just like Kubrick did. And whether they just didn't film in some places pretty or they just didn't have as good a second unit. I mean, Kubrick is afraid of heights. He didn't get in that helicopter himself. He, he just looked at the footage and went, yes, we'll use it. But it doesn't compare in grandeur to what was done in the 80 version but honestly yes while the story beats are very similar very rarely did i find myself able to make direct comparisons scene for scene i was actually able to set aside that kubrick film and and really watch this for what it was okay it's tv the sets or i guess the location shooting isn't going to be as great the acting might not be as great, but I was able to watch this for what it was. And what I wanted to get out of this was what does King see in this? What does he feel the story is? And that's really how I approach this film. What is the shining to King that he felt Kubrick totally missed? Right. I, I'm expecting for ambiguity to be filled in, that there was a lot that remains perplexing about the Kubrick vision. And maybe that isn't satisfying for some viewers. So this is going to be the one to tell us who was that naked lady in the tub? Who were those little twin girls? Who were all those mysteries that I saw the last time? I I'm stunned when I find out that many of those things aren't here or, or don't look remarkably the same. I I'm only bolstered at what Kubrick did with the material when I see what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, you get all of your answers in this very first scene. I mean, they talk about a woman who killed herself in the tub. They don't really <sighs> show it, but we, we are told that that happened. And what a mess. I think there was like three drops of blood. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> and as far as the twin girls go, they changed something that was in the book, and I think maybe because of Kubrick's, they didn't want to try to compete with the twin girl vision, and so now Grady was a single guy who killed himself. Not a guy who killed himself and his family. That also could be a Disney concession. <laughs> yeah, I did feel like, okay, Kubrick's film is this genius piece of ambiguous horror storytelling. Here's where I don't want to have to think as much. I don't want to have to stretch. So give me the answers. Fill in the gaps. And well, what that cement is to fill in these gaps, I, I don't know. It's not that strong. It's not that great. Oh, that creepy old lady in room... 237, or in this one, 217, just someone that committed suicide. Why, why is she this ghost that everything hinders on as we get into the story? I don't know. It's just because she killed herself in that room. It's happenstance. It's, it's weird. Okay. Here's some answers, but it, they don't really do anything for me. As far as happenstance goes, I think that one of the things that the book set up very well is that a lot of negative things happen in the Overlook, possibly because it is a place that was building negative energy due to ownership. There was no Indian burial ground, but a lot of stuff happened. And the fact that that woman killed herself and the fact that mobsters killed other people and mobsters died there and that there were these crazy parties of debauchery, this is all stuff that is stayed in the hotel. The people who died there kept an echo. So here... Because we don't get as many ghosts as we had in the book. We don't get Grady and his family and his daughters and the old lady and so many others. It does feel like happenstance that this woman killed herself and then came back. In the book, yes, she killed herself in the hotel and she is still there. It works so much better in the book than here because the first 20 minutes of this movie or miniseries is just dumping so much exposition at us that everything comes back later. So there's no trying to pick out and be shocked that, oh my god, that came back? I mean, you're hearing about the woman in the bathtub, you're hearing about the boiler, you're hearing about room 217, and it's just all really obvious. The only sense that I guess that I really got that this was a place where evil continued to happen over and over and over, maybe there was some curse, was when Ullman is introduced, Elliot Gould, who somehow he keeps his name on the credits for all three episodes. He only shows up for about <laughs> 10 minutes in this entire thing. And man, all I really know that I know this guy's got a long acting career. All I really know from him is the Ocean's Eleven film. Sorry, but. There is something weird about his performances. He's, he's, you know, this great PR guy, but the way he pronounces every syllable, I, I recognize he does that <laughs> in other things, but it's just the way it comes off in this when he says bastard, like it's so <laughs> stilted and weird. But yeah, he was the one that I got. Okay. Maybe this place is just cursed and they're continually covering it up over and over, but it's this one scene at the very beginning of this four and a half hour movie miniseries. Elliot Gould is too big a star to be playing this part, and I have to believe if you say they cut things out, it was Elliot Gould. I don't think so. It might have been, but if it was, it was pretty much still in this first series. Well, you know what? In the book, there is a brief moment where he appears, which would have been Act 2 here. It's when Jack starts to get the idea to write the book about the Overlook, he actually calls Ullman up and says, hey, I'm going to expose all the dirty secrets you've been covering up. I'm going to write this book. And Ullman gets pissed off and tries to get him fired. And it's referenced here because Danny says, Daddy wants to write a book, but he knows Uncle Al will be mad if he does. That may have referenced it. Maybe there was another two minutes of Elliot Gould. Not much. The director says in the commentary that 
Gould was trying to be off-putting, and that's why he delivers it the way he does. It's off-putting, all right. I wonder if that's an excuse, because it really feels and looks like he showed up, went to makeup, said, who has my cue cards, and keeps looking at them. <laughs> he It's like he doesn't even know what the next word will be, he says. I thought they were going to do something with him, because later when Danny walks into the hotel, there's a picture of him, and Jack is happy to draw a mustache and graffiti, and it turns into the devil. Well, if this is a hotel full of lost, angry, haunted spirits, I thought for sure Elliot Gould was going to be Satan, that he was going to come back. I I just couldn't get over the fact that you would hire Elliot Gould for this part. I just, it, it, it flabbergasted me when I realized that all of the things that they set up, particularly in this first two-hour segment, really, they don't come back. The sponsor doesn't come back. All the characters, the... Watson character. Most of the peripheral characters disappear after this first night. I would actually argue you could have missed the first night of this movie and started watching on night two and picked up very quickly. I agree. I, I think it's one of the damning things about this is that they made it three nights. And was that King? Was that ABC saying we want to have as many people viewing for as many nights as we can? Nobody has spilled those beans that I was able to find. But yeah, The Shining as a book has a slow buildup. And for a miniseries, you've got kind of a problem because something big has to happen in every episode. And you pretty much have to end on a cliffhanger. But that's not what The Shining is. The Shining isn't like The Stand, where you have these acts that we'll be talking about in a year and a half. But... <laughs> yeah, The Stand is his next book, but we got to get through Night Shift first. So that's, uh, yeah, at least a year away. So here, because the book is at least 50% getting to know characters, getting to care about characters in a way that works in prose and would work in a single movie duration, but when you have a miniseries and you need to put in these little mini climaxes and cliffhangers, it doesn't work. And the first night entirely is all set up with no payoff. And you say that you could skip the first night and not miss it, I say I watched the first night and never returned. Yeah, yeah, it would have both effects. Yeah, there's nothing here to hook you into the mystery. Yeah, you could have already watched the Kubrick movie in the time it would have taken to show the first night, and why would you keep watching? I'm watching because I bought it for six bucks plus shipping, and I'm expected to talk about it. But yeah, there's nothing here to grab you. It's, it is scene after dull scene after dull scene. Now, I do want to point out, Kubrick's film is not flawless, and I had some questions about the use of Shelley Duvall. This was an opportunity to improve. Their best hope for doing something better than Kubrick, it was in the casting of Wendy. Rebecca de Mornay, King's first choice, who he'd picked long before this project was ever greenlit. He picked her back when she was a movie star, but I'm telling you, actresses, if, if you're an aspiring actress... Get your work done before you're 35, because here she is 37 and on TV. Hey, she got top billing, which blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, that was really impressive. Yeah, she's the star of this film. And definitely going for a different vibe here. They're playing up T-shirt, no bra, and later she'll appear in a nightie. This is a sexy Wendy. This is a Wendy that's not mousy. She's strong. She's tough. She's sexually confident. She's frankly too good for Steven Weber, but uh <laughs> they've definitely change the character to at least be more sympathetic, even if I'm not sure the performance is 
I don't know. It's almost the reverse problem. I don't get that she's afraid that much. Yeah, I don't buy into her performance at all. I get that they made her stronger. She still gives in to Jack, though. She still covers up that abuse that happened when Danny was younger. It's just, we're supposed to believe she's tougher now, and it comes off as less believable, as pathetic as Shelley Duvall's Wendy was. I could see that being a reality, especially, you know, back by that decade. This one, I just, I don't buy this. Okay, strong, empowered female, but... It's it's not a convincing performance for me. For me, I like her in this role. I really do. I think that Shelley Duvall was too weak in that version. One thing, though, that King had to face is 20 years had passed since he wrote that novel, and women were far more empowered. I mean, in the 70s, women were getting back to the workplace. In the 90s, it was expected that women work. And here, they have her painting a few times. I guess maybe she's trying <laughs> to make a career of it. They don't really say. But I wonder why, if Jack's out on his ass, he doesn't stay home with the kid and she get a job. I mean, that's the era we're living in. Yeah, good point. So I think that there had to be some compromises to her character, but also to strengthen her for the time. And as a result... It makes Jack weaker because I get the impression now that Jack is cowed by her. She tells him, if you touch that bottle again, I would take Danny and we would leave you. And he's like, well, I would just kill myself first. And it makes him seem so weak. And maybe that's the point is for him to go from weak but trying to appease his wife to strong and trying to beat his wife. Except it's Stephen Weber. <laughs> I could take him as the weak guy I, when he has to go scary. Ugh. Yeah, she has a line early on, I'm afraid of your anger. I'm afraid you don't have any anger. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very worried right from the get-go. Weber's introduction. I thought for sure he could play the nice guy. I, I saw that by casting him, you're going from someone that's milk toast, and then they've got to go darker, and maybe he can or can't pull off the psychotic side. But I'm very despondent when he shows up, and he's annoying even as, like, the funny dad. He's playing a weird line, and he's trying to be a nice guy, but he's supposed to have a temper beforehand. In some of the early scenes in this entire miniseries, we see him where he had just broken his son's arm. It's off screen because it's ABC. <laughs> that was annoying, yes. <laughs> and then we see him beating up a high school student who's probably 18, so Disney would allow it. And I can tell during these two scenes that he's not going to be able to pull off the rage later because he should have moments where he's flashing danger here. We needed an actor who could swing that pendulum both ways and be a nice guy. I do want to see what King kept saying Nicholson didn't give us, which is a nice guy who descends into madness. But I can tell from these scenes right here that Weber's going to be going through the motions and following direction as best he can, but he's never going to be intimidating to me. Yeah, that was one of the big opportunities I saw. If I had any interest to watch this TV miniseries, it was to see, can they pull that off? What What is the shining like when you actually believe that Jack Torrance is a nice guy and you see him descend into madness? Weber cannot pull this off. No, he's a fatal blow, but not the worst casting in this. I would say that actually I have bigger problems with Danny. <laughs> oh, God, my God. You know, I really, really don't want to pick on Cortland Mead. Hasn't God been cruel enough? <laughs> Those teeth! <laughs> oh my God! Is this Shelley Duvall's kid? Somewhere he's 25 years old and probably looks perfectly normal after braces. Yes. But I had to wonder repeatedly when watching this movie if he could close those fish lips over those giant teeth. <laughs> 
Yeah, he is a gawky kid. Maybe you can work with that, but it's not creepy. What's so disappointing here is that they're playing Danny and his shining power is just like really, really cool. Mom knows all about it. And he's like, oh, mom, he got the job and raw is also good. Like, really? This is not any way creepy to you that your child has psychic powers? Yeah, Wendy even goes to Danny and goes, did dad get it? This kid, it makes sense now. I I had totally forgotten about how Disney owns ABC, but yeah, this seems like a kid that would be in some Disney show or maybe that direct-to-video Home Alone sequel. I was going to say Home Alone 3. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I got. Particularly later, when he goes in the room 217, I thought he was going to slap both hands on his cheeks and, <laughs> you know, set up traps for the ghost or something. I mean, it is complete Home Alone nonsense. Ugh. Well, I'll tell you, we are going to see this kid again eventually. I will eventually get you guys to do a Hellraiser retrospective with me. He was coming off of the last theatrical Hellraiser film, Hellraiser Bloodline, going into this, where there he was a kid being tormented by Pinhead. And so I had hopes that he might be able to pull off scared, but no, he does not pull off creepy. And I do really question how casually the parents are like, yep, he's psychic. <laughs> yeah, there was something about the child who played Danny and Kubrick. I mean, that whole finger wagging thing, that's something he came up with on his own. And it's just so dissettling. When we see Tony in this film, come on. Come on. <laughs> yes, if I thought Danny was miscast. Oh, my God. Now, we are told that Tony is the name of his stuffed dog. That he has his pet, you know, it's like a stuffed animal that he has, he goes to bed with. I ask you, would it be any worse to see a stuffed dog floating around going, Betty, you have to walk out for the overlook! Though what they have done to Tony is the worst thing that they have done to The Shining. It's unforgivable that we see this gawky teenager floating in the air and turning uh, traffic signs into TV sets for what's going to happen to him. This is the first of many times I begin laughing out loud during this yes. film. This And I, is this from the book? Is this how Tony was represented? Because again, I'm seeing this as Stephen King's vision. This is how it's been sold. This is what he wanted Kubrick to do. And this is just LOL to me. All right. LOL. Are you yes. texting your podcast? I, I wish I was. It'd go a lot quicker. I really wanted to see how they would envision Tony, because in the book, it is described that Danny would go into these trances, and he would see Tony as someone far away, and he couldn't quite make out what Tony looked like, but he could hear the voice. So it would be like a guy standing two blocks away and shouting these things to him, and they could converse, but he couldn't get a bead on what he looked like. And I, it is revealed at the end that it's supposed to be teenage Danny. Not in this way. We never see high school graduation. We have to wait for Dr. Sleep to see Danny past age five. Five in the book, seven here, which makes me wonder why he's just learning to read at age seven. Stuart, you were dungeon mastering me at age seven with <laughs> game guides. So they kept to teenage Danny being Tony, but showing him so clearly is step one. Floating him is <laughs> one that I just don't get. <laughs> I mean, I would have gone with a sixth sense type of thing where, like, you could see Tony walking around Danny and Danny conversing with Tony like they do the ghosts later. Maybe you sell Tony like a ghost. But why they have him floating in midair like some kind of David Blaine ripoff that is quite obviously blue screen, I don't know. That is a weird choice. 
It's cheesy. I can't believe how cheesy Stephen King is. Not just in this moment, but this is the worst of it, I think. But he just really goes for these big emotions and these, yeah, like, is it supposed to be scarier that he's floating like a ghost? Does he really have the mentality that this would frighten someone or unnerve us? It was stunning to me that this was Tony. It was bewitched level of scary. That's not scary. (laughs) Yeah, I know. If I turned this on television, I would presume I'm watching a sitcom. What what was that one where the witch talked to the cat? Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yeah, this is Sabrina-level special effects. I couldn't believe that anyone on TGIF wouldn't be laughing when they see Tony. Now, I do think I figured it out. Later, Steven Weber is wearing an outfit that is very similar to Tony on night two. When Tony's kind of disappeared, he's looking like Tony. I thought we would find out that this was a younger version of his dad or something. I I figured that we would get a picture of his dad. Maybe I was just thinking of Kubrick and how it ended with a picture of Jack Nicholson. I thought Tony might be a relation, but I must admit, I didn't guess that he was future Danny all grown up. Yeah, I knew that going in from the book. I figured with King writing this, it would stay the same. So I was completely spoiled in that regard. Well, if you guys didn't necessarily go for some of these recasting choices, the final big role in the last one was Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers, and here, Melvin Van Peebles, who I know as Mario's dad. Yeah, isn't Mario (laughs) the famous one? Well, no. Well, the one that has name recognition, at least. No, I mean, I know who he is now, but in the 70s black exploitation <laughs> movement, okay. I mean. Yeah, I would say Melvin is more respected overall. He is one of the founding fathers of getting black films made independently in America and definitely a major figure. But uh, not as an actor. I mean, I think that he got by in Hollywood doing bit parts as acting, but I think he's mostly known as a producer, director, writer. And yes, he had a more famous handsome son do New Jack City and Panther and a few other 90s black exploitation movies. But I didn't know him as an actor, and I don't think I still know him as an actor here. If, if Kubrick did 148 takes to get Scatman to give us that performance, all I know is the finished results. This one feels like they did a run-through and taped it. I mean, this is they couldn't have done more than two takes of these scenes with Dick and Danny when he gets to the hotel. There's no chemistry there. There's not, and... I know from listening to the commentaries and reading the makings of for The Shining that Scatman, there was a lot of dialogue for him to do. It was a really hard scene to find emotions in. And here, Melvin has about the same amount of dialogue, but instead of being like Scatman and really trying to find a way to deliver it in a way that's impactful and meaningful, Melvin's just going to say his lines and get it over with. And maybe he's not getting a whole lot from meat, or maybe they're running short on filming time because they have to do this all in 70-some days. But yeah, this scene between the two of them out there, I'm not into their dialogue at all. All I'm into is trying to figure out if the car that they're standing right next to is Christine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that might be an in-joke. It was, right? It's a Plymouth Fury from the 50s. I'm so glad that he's more interested in self-referencing himself than, I don't know, setting a mood for horror. I gotta ask, though, if you're at a hotel and this guy comes out in a pimp suit and says, let Thank me take you. your boy to my car, <laughs> are you gonna let you. him? <laughs> Whatever they did with Scatman, they might have gone too far one way with the magical minority character here they seem to go the other way and instead of kind of being this lowly servant now he's coming off as a total pimp i don't know why it has to be the extremes in these films well in the film's defense 
Melvin insisted upon his own wardrobe, and despite King's objections, we get this cook slash pimp. Yeah, I'm kind of worried what's going to happen at the end if he ends up with Wendy. Is is she going to end up a prostitute turning tricks for this guy? Or will Danny? No. Yeah, there's no chemistry. You know, the Scatman, his version of Halloran, that was the warmth. That was the warm character in that cold Kubrick film. And that moment of Danny here, it's just another scene. It's just, here's here's more info dump. It does feel like this whole hour is about, yeah, having various people tell us all the things that we should be feeling about the, you know, let us tell you all about who died here in this room and that and all of that. Show, don't tell. I mean, that's a simple rule of filmmaking. You don't want to have characters walking around narrating what the audience is supposed to intuitively know when they look at the screen. Kubrick clearly understood that. This movie is just choking on all of its on-the-nose dialogue. The one thing they do show is something new for this movie that I do not enjoy. They turn Danny into Carrie. He can now break glass. They show him at a basketball game in flashback, shattering a hoop. Yeah, if he yells, Hi, Dick! Loud enough in his mind, he'll give Dick a bloody nose and break his taillight. It's kind of Dennis the Menace, isn't it? (laughs) Mr. Wilson! I hope you're having a good vacation in Florida! Oh, man. I'd come back and give him the croquet mallet. Dick even says he has the power of an atom bomb, like he could blow people up if he yelled loud enough with his mind. I believe it. Believe me, this kid's voice, there is something about when he cries, I have roommates, and they came down the hall and were like, what are you watching? I don't know how many axe murderer movies I've put on. It's never phased them, but yeah, there's something about the tenor of his whine that is just, oh my god, unbelievably annoying. Well, in this whole first night, we do get a scene of ghostly horror or insect infestation. I remember this from the book. I remember this being a a point where I perked up and went, oh, I don't know this story at all. But yeah, this all feels very familiar from the book that a wasp nest is found. It's bug bombed. It's given to the child. And, you know, what's supposed to be a nice moment between father and son, I guess. My dad never gave me a wasp (laughs) nest, but I I guess I'm okay with it. I grew up all right. But the bugs come out and and sting poor little Danny in his sleep. So were these bugs, I mean, was this a ghostly manifestation? Because this happened so soon after Dick, same line as in the Kubrick film. So I'm guessing this is a Stephen King notion that these are pictures in a book. They can't hurt you. And the first ghost we see, they hurt him. They sting him. He's got to go to the doctor in the second episode well the ghostly visions can't hurt him but yeah this is a place where bad luck happens these aren't ghost wasps oh they're not they weren't resurrected i took it as they aren't the dead wasps come back to life it's just wasps came out of there and what they say is the bug bomb didn't work why wouldn't the bug bomb work where were these wasps hiding they are real wasps they don't disappear when they get trapped they are eventually killed But how does that happen? Because the Overlook is a place where bad things happen. This is the first strike where things start to get tense. And it's supposed to, in the book, really play up the tension between Wendy and Jack. Because Wendy didn't trust it. Jack said it's fine. Jack was proven wrong, making Jack again look like a bad father. Here, Wendy doesn't seem so upset with Jack about it. So it's just supposed to be, ooh, it's scary. No, no, no. This isn't supposed to be scary. 
Is it? I mean, I I did get the sense that this was supposed to be, oh, there's Jack, my bumbling husband again, hurting my son. (laughs) I got that that's what we were supposed to feel. I didn't feel it, especially when Jack starts taking Polaroid pictures to start his lawsuit up. I think they're trying to do a whole lot of things in this first act where they try to foreshadow spooky things. Like a hose with teeth. Well, that is the worst. That is a cartoon. They actually said in the commentary, this was the first time sophisticated CGI was used in prime time. Not that sophisticated. I mean, come on. Everything that's supposed to be scary. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of closing doors. There's a swing that swings and there's some wasps. This is really mundane. I am horrified when Danny has a vision of Jack with a bloody mallet, because I'm like, we're not even going to use a scary tool. We're going to use a Denver croquet mallet. <laughs> like, that's going to be our hair Johnny moment. Come on. They have nothing in this first hour. It truly is lights going on and off, doors closing and opening. I kind of wish I had that ghost. I'm known to leave cabinets open. It would be great if one would come around behind me and close all the doors. Yeah, they got nothing. At least the second night knew enough to end on a cliffhanger. I mean, they literally put Danny in danger and you're presumed to want to care enough about him to come back for more on another night. Here, if, yeah, this is the ending up, the worst thing that happens is a bunch of chairs fall off a table. I mean, literally, that's their cliffhanger here. As, ooh, things are happening here at the Overlook. Now, I have to ask, what we're told again and again and again through the dialogue between the characters is that Danny is causing this into being. These ghosts have always been here, but because Danny is there, they're becoming more real and they're having more power. If Danny were not there, these wasps would not be coming out, the chairs would not be falling over. Okay. Is Danny willing this to be? I mean, I guess I wish I understood what that relationship was. Are these his fears manifest? Is it just that he's walking? Is he a magnet and literally it just brings it to him? I I wish I understood the relationship. I know that's what they're telling me, is that there's this cause and effect. But I don't really follow it. Yeah, Dick says, oh, if I knew you had such a strong shining power, I, I, I wouldn't want you to be here. I wouldn't let anyone with a power that strong be here. And yeah, I get, okay, is that giving this ghost powers? When we get into the third episode, it gets even more confusing because they want to kill Danny. They want to kill the source of their power. I get the sense that Danny has awoken something or has given them power to become stronger. I just don't understand the decisions these ghosts make later on with that source of their power. Now- I'll tell you what I got from the book, and then I'll tell you how it differs a little bit in the movie. If you look at both, Grady went through the same thing. I think we see this so often, where you hear about something terrible that happened, and then you see it coming to another group of people so that you're seeing exactly what went through before. It makes a lot more sense when Grady had a wife and two kids that he killed before killing himself to understand that the Overlook, with or without a super psychic there is going to try to get its fingers into your brain and kill you. They're ghosts. They don't exactly have a reasonable motivation for why they want to continue to populate the hotel. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, why why don't they kill everyone that stays there during the summer if they just want to kill people or get more ghosts? I don't understand the motivation for this hotel wanting to do what it does. From Grady, I got that it, it took some time to do it. But if they can kill Danny and have that psychic power trapped in there with them there is a malevolent being in the book that is behind the hotel it is never explained it's very 
kind of Lovecraftian in its nebulousness. Mm-hmm. Is it is it the manager? I always get this sense. They always talk about the manager. No, it is not any human. It is a nebulous spirit. Well, I don't think the manager needs to be a human, but yeah, something behind everything. Oh, you mean the real man? You mean the manager they're referring to, like the management yes. and not like Omen. I, I took your statement as Omen. Yeah. Sorry. But yeah, it's the spirit behind it who apparently has evil designs, you know, and we're going to see this again and again with King's work, especially as we go through his writing, is there are these evil, malevolent beings and spirits out there. And this is one of them that it enjoys killing. So it wants Danny's power to grow stronger. But it will grow stronger if it's not in him? That's what I don't get is it seems like if you kill the boy, the power dissipates. You want to corrupt him, so he uses that power for evil purposes. But everyone who dies at the Overlook has always been at the Overlook, will always be at the Overlook. I, I look at it as like a supercharged battery being put in something. That, that's my take. It's honestly not that different from Salem's Lot. If When you consider that there was murders throughout the history of that house in Salem's Lot, and that it just brought the vampires to it, that... That's the way that I took it. It feels like they've just taken that house and put it in Colorado now. And yeah, I agree. There is this nebulous Lovecraftian force that's at the center of that book. I don't get that in this movie. I thought they were going to make it Ullman, but they, they really just back away from it. And so you ultimately think it's the ghost of the former owner, that there's this Horace Derwent that's always throwing the masquerade parties, that I get the sense that he's the one that's the main bad guy, I guess. And it's kind of implied in the book that he's the one who may have brought the evil there. He was obsessed with the hotel, that kind of thing. In the book, it's not entirely explained. I like it better for that. We've talked so many times on this podcast about how the more you try to explain the supernatural, the stupider it comes off. So there are mysteries left unexplained, things we don't understand. But here... I'll tell you, I hate the fact that they're knocking chairs around and things because it makes me think of Patrick Swayze in Ghost when he's trying to move the tin can. If the ghost can move shit, why do they need Jack? Just start smashing people with books. Yeah, it's inconsistent because at the end, we're going to see the ghost start to materialize and they can finally touch that boiler and start to let the steam out. But then they turn into ghost again and they can't. Well, why are they able to do all this other stuff? Why can they hurt Danny? Why can they move chair? It, it's very inconsistent. And maybe the explanation is the closer they get to Danny, the more powerful they are so they can't attack him. But it's all over the place. This is where ambiguity helps. If you don't have a reason, if you don't have an answer, then leave it a mystery. Let us fill in those gaps. Not to mention, I mean, aren't they more powerful as goats? Wouldn't you rather be an evil spirit than a physical being if your whole game is to surprise people and hurt them? I mean, let's face it, this woman in 217 killed herself. Why would she want to come back alive? The whole point was to die. I think you got it right with Salem's Lot, though, Stuart. When you kill yourself, you're no longer yourself. You're now being taken over by the evilness of the Overlook. If you kill yourself a depressed person, this isn't Bates Motel and you're going to come back and throw a 50s doo-wop party. You're going to be a malevolent (laughs) hotel spirit now. Yeah, and that's clear. Once we finally get to room 217, boy, not nearly as spooky and ominous as 237. Or naked, I should say. Or old. That was the thing that got me, is in the book and in Kubrick's film, she was an old lady. Here, if she wasn't so seaweed-looking, she might be doable. (laughs) (laughs) Is it bloat? Is it she's been in the water too long? I couldn't figure out why she looked like a frog. 
Yeah, I mean, all these ghosts, as they start to materialize later on, they, they look like zombies or, I don't know, They, they all their faces are painted white, it, really bad makeup. It, it's, have they deteriorated and they're slowly coming back together to their old physical form? Again, not a whole lot of answers. It's, I, you know what, I want something creepy. And I think when we do get in 217, Danny has this thing where he looks away and counts to 10 and looks back and they're not there. Is this as eerie as what Kubrick did? No, but when you see those hands reach out at 217 all of a sudden and grab Danny, after he thought he made that picture go away. Well, it's the one kind of scare that I enjoyed in this film. It made me jump. It startled me. I knew it was coming. I mean, I really did. The way the shot is framed, it's obvious. He's with his back to the freaking door. The door is open. Something's going to come out of that door. But the way it happened, the big noise that happens when it happened, the fact that it happens a beat later than I expected, yes, congratulations. Much like dropping a frying pan in a kitchen, you made me jump. It was the closest thing to a scare. Well, no, there's two of them, but this is the closest thing to a scare in night two. And the thing is, it takes forever. <laughs> Danny, he's getting called to go to the second floor, and he goes into Ullman's office, and he steals the key, and he's about to do it, and Tony stops him, and then Jack yells at him. I mean, it's not like they just get to 217. This is a long road till we get to this scare. There's multiple attempts for Danny to enter into this room. Every time, though, he is scared by that hose. He's always looking at that hose, afraid it's going to snap at him. This is the thing about adapting King's writing, is there are certain things he can write, and... While I'm reading them, and it is specifically a fire hose and moving plants, that I go, it doesn't visualize as scary in my mind's eye. But he can write it in such a way that I can take it as a dangerous presence, but... If adapting this to film, I would not adapt it literally. The best thing Kubrick did, the upgrade he gave, is getting rid of hedge animals. Because... There is no way a tree shaped like a lion is going to be anything but comedy gold. I agree. The, 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 when I One of the things I heard about were these hedge animals that are going to come alive. And I'm like, oh, this is not going to turn out good. I have to say, though, in this second episode, Jack goes out. He's shoveling off this playground, cleaning snow off the playhouse. And there is this scene where they just use camera tricks where you never quite know if these hedge monsters are moving or if it's just tricks of the camera. And, you know, all of a sudden they're in front of them. I did like that more than when they actually did move. I like the camera tricks, how it was just moving the camera a certain way, so you couldn't tell if it was the camera moving or the animal moving. I think if you're going to do this, that's the way to do it. I take that as a negative. I couldn't tell that the animals were moving. I need to be have it more clear that these animals are moving if they're supposed to be. I look back and... I get from reading the book that that lion is supposed to be in a different pose, but because they're trees... They just don't look all that different. I do like, though, that it plays into, is this going on in Jack's head? Is this cabin fever? They play with that probably too much in this film, where we see Jack at a party, and then everyone disappears, and he's talking to himself. Early on, though, I think that's the right way to go. Is he going crazy? Is, is he suffering because he can't go to his AA meetings anymore because of the snow? I, I like that there's still that hint, uh, is it in his head, or are they actually moving? Yeah, I'll, I'll go with you on that. Yeah, it's, let me put it this way. It's not as glaringly apparent that it's stupid when you just see that the snow falls off of the animals and, yeah, they've changed positions. If you've got the eye to catch that, it's mildly creepy. But when we actually see at the end of night two, the computer graphics of them walking up 
towards the kid and he's I like snow I like snow I like snow and I like snow I want to punch him because I'm going to be thinking that when I'm shoveling the shit out of my driveway this winter <laughs> I think the worst part of that cliffhanger are they playing the Jaws music it, it, maybe it's just a rip off but that is Jaws like da 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 I'm like no those are plant animals sneaking up this is not scary this is not worthy of Jaws <laughs> It was giggle-inducing. I must have seen this on its original airing because I definitely had this memory of this child being stalked by hedges. It was in the commercial because I did not watch this second night. And it was in the next time on The Shining. And this is not an enticement to watch. This is one of those effects you cover up and you hope that they're going to still be watching when you're done. Now, they apparently had real puppets for this that looked even worse, and so they cut them and decided to go all CGI. Wow. Oh, I would have loved to see the person dressed up as the hedge being like, do you want me to roll? Should I roll? Or should I just... Not outfits. I think they were more like not Muppets or just puppets or marionettes oh, or something. Oh, that's disappointing. But yes, anyway, you slice it. Let's just call it what it is. Kubrick was right. You don't want to have lawn animals attack anyone. Even if you had all the money and budget, even if you were to make this now, you would not want to go with that because it's not a powerful visual. The hedge maze, brilliant. It mirrors the crazed feeling of what's going on with the characters. That the whole place feels like a maze and then you go into a hedge maze, great. But here, no, having lawn animals attack people like lions, that's just, it's not frightening. I mean, you get the weed whacker, you you strike a match, it's over. It's just, (laughs) it's not an intimidating battle and it's the centerpiece, it should be said, of this whole thing. It's how they culminate. It's the cliffhanger for night two. It's the middle of the movie now. And we've had, yes, wasps, a frog woman in a tub, and a hose with teeth that spits out blood, and this. And I'm just thinking, how on earth would anyone think that this was scarier than what Kubrick did, who recognized that it was about the psychology of these characters, of this family breaking down? No matter what your take is on what happened in The Shining, the fear was coming from the interaction, or lack thereof. I think they're trying to get at that here. Because if you look at night two, the most memorable thing to me isn't even the plant animals. I forgot those were the cliffhanger of night two, and I just watched this yesterday. What I remember most of night two is this long, long scene that takes place between Wendy and Jack in the study. And Jack is raging about this whole night. Jack has been getting more and more pissy and... Wendy decides she's horny and wants to seduce him, and he turns her away. And they have this 10-minute dialogue about their relationship and his relationship with Danny and the way he's acting and how his writing is going. They are trying really hard in the script to get us into the minds of these characters the only way they can. But King is a master of prose fiction where he can be the omniscient narrator, and we can mix thoughts with observations with dialogue. Here, you've got to put it on the screen, and he writes ham-fisted dialogue that just is way too obvious, and then mixes it with Steven Weber, who just does not portray any emotion that I can put a beat on other than flop sweat. All these films we've done, 
We had De Palma's Carrie, where it, it was a horror film. And then we had the 2013 one, where it was more of a dramatic take. The two Salem lots. One was more horror, one was more dramatic. I get they're going for more dramatic here. We've had the horror version. Now here's all this dealing with alcoholism and this family that's trying to work it out. And there's this history of violence with the father and losing his temper. And I, I get all that's going on. But yeah, you're right, Arnie. It's just the, the way it's written, this dialogue... And the way these actors are pulling it off or not pulling it off, you know, there, there's so many times with Steven Weber where he's getting mad at Danny for going into Mr. Ullman's office. I don't know if he's just mad because that's how he gets when he loses his temper, like he, when he beat up that kid in high school, or if this is the ghost, like, prompting him and, and pushing him, and I can't tell. I, I would like to be able to tell when is he sincerely mad and fighting the demons within himself, and when is it the ghost manipulating him and playing him? That There, there should be a subtle difference difference between there and I never get that when he's mad it's always the same when he's nice guy it's always the same there's no subtlety here I actually kind of like that though I like the ambiguity is it him is it the ghosts I can go with that as a mystery it's a mystery that needs resolution the resolution here is very different than in the book and I don't necessarily like where it goes but during these scenes yeah I need a little bit more than these repeated lines and again what works on the page doesn't necessarily work when you're delivering it like kissing kissing that's what I've been missing (laughs) that's from the book no okay (laughs) I would never recommend a book that has this what about the white Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Come on over. It's good packing snow. I mean, yeah, there are some (laughs) ridiculous lines in this film. It it is the chattiness. It is crucial that that we point this out. It is the chattiness that ultimately kills this. There are a lot of fatal wounds that it probably would have bled out and, and, and Shining would have died. But it's the fact that these people can't shut up. Kubrick's, it was all about them not talking to one another. He was hammering on that typewriter. He didn't, wouldn't let Wendy even come into the room. And Danny was seeing these horrible things, but Tony wouldn't let him talk about it. And Wendy would try to use the radio to, you know, talk to someone and, and then it stopped working. I mean, it was about the isolation and the fact that these characters were dying to talk but couldn't. Here, they just don't shut up. It's just, you're right, literally. 10-minute scenes between the characters and with group hugs. I mean, I can't believe it. At one point, he picks up a mask and says, I want to be a different person, so maybe it won't hurt when you push and you yell. And they all hug. I'm like, oh my god, this has become facts of life. It was a little bit on the nose for him to say that out loud. And it's an idea that you could go with, is putting on the mask to hide behind something. But when he says that, doesn't it also turn you against Wendy? He's mad at both his parents for the way they act. Equally, he's as mad at Wendy as he is with the guy with the croquet mallet that's saying, come here and take your medicine pup. Yeah, no, it it makes no sense. Night three, I guess it's the best night. It's the one where things are finally happening. We're into the January, the final days. It all ends on January 5th. And we see that Tony has disappeared and that Dick is now being summoned to come up from Florida to help out. Much like it was with Scatman. With Shawnee Smith, you notice. He was being waited on by Shawnee Smith there. Who's Shawnee Smith? Well, she was in The Stand. She was on a CBS sitcom. I mean, she's an actress of note, and she was cameoing. This thing, especially episode three, 
is chock full of cameos. You get Shawnee Smith, Sam Raimi, Stephen King, Frank Darabont. That is Sam Raimi. Yep. Okay, I, I wasn't sure. Yeah, it's King himself is here as well. It's worth pointing out. It's a band leader. Yeah. Stephen King's The Shining, starring Stephen King, written by <laughs> Stephen King, produced by Stephen King, based on the novel by Stephen King. And Dick does have to catch a flight, and meanwhile, Jack is in his final descent. The ghosts have finally materialized alcohol for him. And here's something else I don't necessarily like. The ghosts all look like extras from Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. If you're going to have a drink with some ghosts, don't you want good-looking ghosts, not ghosts that look undead? (laughs) These look like poor Halloween costume. You could see the white cake paint on their face. Again, I'm wondering, are they reverting back to the human form is that why they look like this wouldn't they want to look beautiful if they're going to try to seduce you to murder your family it was actually said that they're supposed to look more human the more powerful they get and the more control they get over jack so in the early scenes that's why they look so ungodly and why later on they look more normal but i like it better how the book did it you know i said that in several cases about kubrick's i'll say that in every case about here all the changes they did they seem to do for the sake of cheap scares when making this they said they wanted it to be the scariest thing ever on primetime television and instead they're going for 1960s hokum it is yeah i mean we, we get the guy with the dog mask he's not giving a blow job he's literally like poking his head in front of the camera going boo to scare you all right but that did startle me because he popped out of nowhere <laughs> I, I was startled i'm not scared i then laughed at his spencer's gifts mask <laughs> And they do get a little sexual innuendo in there. The millionaire owner at one point is teaching him tricks, and uh, I don't know, you just go watch the scene. I I don't know what you'd call that trick, but I'm not sure it's something I'd let a dog do. It's there. I never quite understood the bisexuality in King's original novel. It's definitely understated here for the primetime Disney crowd, but if you've read the book, you can see it if you want it. But the idea is that they're getting him liquored up so that with some ghost alcohol in him, he won't be in his senses. This is confusing to me. Isn't it enough that spirits themselves could possess you? The spirits have to then get you drunk? Hold on now. They did the same fucking thing in Kubrick's. You didn't have a problem. Same fucking thing. No, I don't know that that is true. He's not drunk when he's attacking them. Yes, he is. I never got the feeling that he was actually drinking alcohol. That that was ghost alcohol. Here, yes. it materializes. Wendy sees it. Yeah. Somehow they walked down to the 7-Eleven down the road and bought him a bottle of Jack's. Yeah, that's what I'm confused about, is that in my conception, although Jack thinks he's having alcohol, there is no actual alcohol. Here, it's, it's lines of dialogue. Danny says he's drinking now, and this was the only way that he could get him to turn against us. So there has to actually be alcohol involved, somehow, I guess. Though, does he ever drink the alcohol? There's, again, I found it funny. He goes to get a shot glass to pour it and just trips over the... Well, he had several drinks when the ghosts were there, but then when they leave him the bottle, he passes out. But he hadn't had real alcohol. He had had his ghost alcohol. Again, I, I'm drawing a line between what we see him drinking with the ghost and this actual physical bottle that other characters see. But no, he trips over the wet bar and hurts himself. And that's because he's drunk. Because in Kubert's vision, I never thought that Jack Nicholson was inebriated. In that final fight, I did not believe that he was drunk. And so this is a very different conception. I always took it as once he started drinking, 
then that was the downfall, and it was always real alcohol provided by the ghosts. And I took that in Kubrick's. I mean, we discussed, are there really ghosts? If ghosts can undo the latch outside the pantry, they do it here, they did it in Kubrick's, they did it in the book, the ghost can also give you a martini. Yeah, but I didn't feel the ghost set up a whole bar for Jack Nicholson. Again, I, I feel that was something he thought he was drinking. Here... Weber acts drunk. He's going through the same thing with these ghosts, drinking this, I'll call it ghost alcohol, but the way he acts, it's like a placebo. He thinks it's the real thing, and he is stumbling around drunk. Yeah, I agree. Nicholson had a drink. This guy is blitzed. And I kind of liked the fact that in the novel, all of this was a allegory for alcoholism. And yes, he had to drink in order for that to happen. I went with it a lot more in the book, I think, because of the performance in my head versus the performance <laughs> of Steven Weber. I honestly don't think you can oversell how miscast Steven Weber is as literally the only person who would take the job. I have new respect for Craig T. Nelson's puking up a tequila worm performance for Poltergeist 2 now after seeing this. But... I think that the concepts are solid in some of these cases, the execution immeasurably flawed. Again, so much of this comes off like a sitcom to me when he starts acting drunk. I'm guessing I'm supposed to be scared. I'm supposed to be horrified that this father has now gotten drunk and is trying to murder him. Was King, was he taking a stab at Kubrick? Because this version of Jack Torrance, he actually does work. He's walking around drunk and he repeatedly throughout all three episodes, it's like, it's my job. I'm the caretaker. We see him at doing the boiler. We see him working, uh, you know, in that Kubrick's film is all Wendy. But I, again, I feel this is almost like a punchline. This is a, his sitcom tagline. It's like one of the ghosts, uh, pooped on the floor. I'll clean it up. It's my job. I'm the caretaker. It's just everything about his performance yells, not just TV, but bad TV. And speaking of the boiler, it frustrates the hell out of me that on night three, just to remind the audience there's a boiler, they keep cutting to it. Nobody's in the basement. Nobody needs to be thinking about the boiler. But because that's going to be the climax of the film, they're going to show it to us 18 times. I got a question. Even in the book, there was more concern about what Jack was writing. Here we've been told that he's been working on a play and then he gave up on it. But no, no, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. No, nothing. Anything that he was working on, was that cut? Do you think that this was part of the excising that they made the choice for? No, as it is in the book is as it is here. He was working on a play. We get a lot of his thoughts on the play and through his views of the play, get insight into Jack's mindset as it changes. But he never starts writing bullshit on a typewriter the way they do in the Kubrick film. This is King's original vision. And so he stops writing the play and becomes obsessed with concepts of a book about the Overlook. I get that from this. No, I, I, I definitely get it. I just, I feel like it would have been helpful if Wendy had been able to read some of it or talk about if they're going to do so much talking. I don't know. I just feel like this whole thing about him going there to write a book got dropped. And even in Stephen King's work, the book that he was working on was more important than it seems to be in this Stephen King movie. I think that's because we're inside his head and we see why he becomes obsessed with the Overlook. Here, we get scene after scene of Stephen Weber lit, it feels like with a flashlight held under his chin around a campfire, looking at papers. And I, at some point, I'm like, 
what are all these papers? I get the scrapbook he looks at with the newspaper articles, but at one point it looks like he's literally sorting doilies. And I don't know what all this has to do. It's just he's reading papers and papers make him evil in the movie version because we don't know what's on them. Furthermore, why would the hotel even have these if Ullman is such a PR guy that's covering up all the horrible things that happened there? Why, why would they have a record of this? Why wasn't all that thrown in the boiler and burned up? It was left there by the manager for Jack. Because having the knowledge of it would drive him crazy. This is Lovecraftian in design. I'm going to just say this. I feel like somewhere in here, this story could be told and it would be frightening. But it's not on ABC television for three nights. And it's just not done with Mick Garris sensibilities. I mean, some of it's just the choices of camera and lighting and music. God, the music. If it isn't ripping off Jaws, it's ripping off tubular bells or these angelic choirs. Oh, I hate that with that theme song. That, oh, oh, like, yeah. It's just cheesy movie making. I mean, truthfully, if you took the Stephen King out of this, you would think that this was Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark or something for children. <laughs> this looks silly. It's the kind of horror movie I hated even as a kid because it felt dumbed down. I wanted to be legitimately scared. And when I saw this kind of nonsense, I'd be like, no, this is not it. Agreed completely, and where this really drives itself home like a mallet to the gut is in the final climax, because Jack finally goes nuts, he gets the croquet mallet, now, I think that could work in the hands of somebody dangerous, like a baseball bat, but... My mental imaginings from the book seem dangerous. When you saw it early in the film, bloody, it was kind of ominous. Here he's got it. He does look like he's more of a sportsman than a killer. But he's going around, and I will give this film a bit of credit. I am surprised at the brutality with which he beats the hell out of Rebecca de Mornay with this. its I mean, admittedly, it's still prime time. I'm not like, how'd they get it past the censors bad? But the <laughs> fact that we see even what we do was a little stunning, not because of anything other than, A, it's creepy to see a guy beat up his wife, and B, it was network television. And then it's all undermined when he's actually about to kill her. The ghosts are like, no, 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 stop. It, you know, this is like G.I. Joe. Go kill Danny. You beat me to my punch, Jacob, because the thing that kills me is that every time he's about to yes. make a killing blow, the ghosts show up and tell him to go somewhere else and not kill the person he's about to finish off. They spend longer telling him not to kill the person than it would take him to bash their fucking heads in. And I do want to just point it out there. Twin Peaks had aired on ABC television seven, six years prior. The death of Madeline. We had seen incredibly violent, horrific imagery in that show. Not when owned by Disney, though. Yes. I think I think you're on to something with there. Truthfully, ABC had done this many years before, much better, much scarier. It is shocking how innocent and non-threatening this feels. I'll give you, when he's actually bringing the mallet down on Dick or on Wendy, sure, for those brief seconds, this movie has a bit of the fire that you'd expect from the Stephen King novel. But at no other time, does it? I mean, it just really is neutered. Of course, you mentioned Dick. I specifically was thinking when Wendy's getting beaten, because that hit to the gut. And yes, it was said that they had several more hits to Wendy that ABC just dug in their heels and said, we will not air this if you have her hit more than what we saw. But when Dick gets there, oh my God, oh my God. I, I know that this has to have been King's writing, because I know sometimes his dialogue isn't great. But when Jack's standing there, looking demonic and ghostly, holding a mallet, 
His wife is bruised and <laughs> crawling on the ground. And Dick stands there with his mouth agape while he goes, You just won the publisher's clearinghouse, Dick! <laughs> oh, on the pop culture. Kubrick did it too. I mean, here's Johnny was a pop culture riff, but I swear to God, at one point he did a nut and honey. <laughs> yes! yes! That commercial? That's not even like Cheerios or Raisin Bran. Those are the least cereals remember today. Who remembers nut and honey? <laughs> You would in 97, that's all I'll give it. Yeah, it was probably on the air at the time, but my God, you're really going to frighten us with that image of the bee flying around your oats and milk? Oh my God. <laughs> you mentioned here's Johnny, and that is the second moment. I said there were two moments of the miniseries where I couldn't get Kubrick out of my head. The first was that aerial shot of the VW bug. The second, Jack is breaking into the bathroom where Wendy's hiding. Big mistake, McGarris. To show him poke his head through that door again. Yes, I know it's in the book. You don't go there. You can't beat mm-hmm. Here's Johnny, especially with, and I quote, Boo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I do think I had tears in my eyes and just <laughs> laughing at this point. It is funny to me. It's just funny. That should have been cut. Just don't show him sticking his head in there. You could shoot it a different way to make us not think of Kubrick. This is the fucking DVD cover for Kubrick's The Shining is Jack Nicholson's face through that door. Later, you see him reaching through the door. You could do different angles. Just don't do that. Don't go there. Don't throw down that gauntlet because Kubrick will pick it up and bitch slap you with it. (laughs) Yeah, whenever it seems like King wants to one-up or show, hey, I'm better than that Kubrick film, this can hold a candlestick up to it in some way in his mind. He loses every time. I mean, it, it's so weird. When Wendy is protecting herself this time in the bathroom, she doesn't have a knife. She has, like, little tiny, what, razor blades you use to shave your face? I'm like, that is a short-range weapon you're using there. <laughs> and that works? <laughs> and ABC had a problem. She cut him too much. It's a croquet mallet against a razor blade. I mean, yeah, the... This is just, it's its a comedy. I mean, I literally can't believe that they thought that this would work. But the ghosts pull him away again. Because Danny's the one that's important. He's the, for reasons that I'm not going to dwell any further on, the one that has to be killed or taken or, or something. He's the one that Jack finally gets to up in the second floor and it becomes a strange collaboration. Tag team, if you will. Danny reminds him that he hasn't dumped the boiler yet, and so he runs off to do that, and then they, through the magic of The Shining, decide it's better to blow the whole thing up. Now, this is very, very different in the book. In the book, Wendy does have a knife, and, you know, here she throws that croquet ball at his head. Oh, my God, with the croquet. And he says, you killed me, and you kind of wonder, you know, why? (laughs) In the book, she stabs him in the back. And he does, I think, die, and then he gets up again and says, you killed me, and he's now a zombie, basically. He is an undead, he is a body completely possessed by a ghost. Jack is gone, and now she's being chased by something she can't kill. And he even takes the mallet and beats his own face into a bloody pulp just to prove to them they can't hurt him and he will keep coming till they're dead. And yet... Because it's the only physical manifestation in the Overlook, yes, it is what has to run down there to stop the boiler from blowing sky high. Here, 
they actually try to give Jack a redemption arc for the father who broke his son's arm and beat up a student and drank ghost liquor and beat his wife with a mallet. Oh, it's okay, because some of it was ghost-possessed, so let's redeem him at the end. Yeah, he's a different person when he drinks. They're going to blame it all on the alcohol, which is, I think, the opposite of AA. But anyway, it was all the alcohol's fault and the real father It was there all along. And yeah, it becomes a tag team of you get your coat and run out the door with the others while I let the steam build up and the ghosts aren't quite material enough to do anything about it. And Dick is so pointless. He doesn't do Dick up there except bring a vehicle. <laughs> I do love that they're like, he's like, hurry, the boiler's gonna blow. Okay, let, let's go get changed in our snow clothes first. Like, he can't even get them out of the building. Not only that, did you see the vehicle? I mean, it looks like the tricycle from the Kubrick film. I mean, how are they all gonna fit on that thing? And what was it he goes back to grab? Danny doesn't just put on his clothes. He's like grabbing papers and... I think he grabbed the novel. Was it the novel or the play? Yeah, he's grabbing his dad's writing, whatever it was. Yeah, he grabbed the manuscript. This is what I was saying, yes. That that supposedly he crafted something that was important. I took it from the novel as being an expose about what the evil was in the hotel that was going to get published. Here, I just feel like... They might have filmed that, and it just didn't make the final cut. But then they have to try to explain who Tony is, right? I mean, we can't just be left with Tony as another unexplained spirit, like all the other unexplained spirits. So we're going to tack on an ending, not in the book. Ten years later, Danny's graduating from high school, and Dick is still there? (laughs) I'm telling you, I got a real pip vibe. He's keeping Wendy around. He's staying close to her. She the bottom bitch? She's the something. I don't know. She may be the top. She works at an art gallery. Remember all those drawings she did? Wasn't it her her own art gallery? That's what I thought. (laughs) Yes. She was selling her still life paintings of fruit baskets? Maybe she got better in 10 years. (laughs) I really wondered what we were doing because it looks like Danny is graduating from the same university where his father beat up a student. Do you think it's intimidation that got him the honors to graduate? (laughs) Remember when my dad kicked someone's ass? I'm a step away. Well, no, they did drop a line when he's seen the doctor for his wasp sting. The doctor's like, it's like there's a grad student in his head. I actually didn't know Tony was the high school version of him. I thought it was a grad school version of him because they dropped that line. So th- there is this some line that he, he's got smarts. He's supposed to be a real smart kid. And now his mother shines, too, because when he's at the podium receiving the diploma, he says, I love you guys, and they both hear it. This is the worst ending ever, right? Well, no, because then they do one step beyond that. It's not enough to think the two survivors, we got to get Steven Weber back for a curtain call. This is what I'm talking about. This is what you're missing, huh? (laughs) It's, yeah, that he blows him a kiss, and Tony, (laughs) Tony slash Danny in front of everyone at the school, graduated with honors, grabs that kiss. That's what I've been missing. (laughs) And nobody looks up. Every other student is just sitting there staring off bored into space. They may not even know the camera's rolling. Nobody's looking <laughs> twice that this kid with honors has started to now do some weird mime routine on the stage and say, that's what I've been missing. When he, man, I just lost it. When he said, that's what I've been missing. As bad as this scene was, when they capped it off with that line, I, I may have fallen off the sofa. And that line was always used for sex. It was always husband and wife. It was never father and son. No, at the very, very beginning, when 
Jack gets back from the interview or the orientation at the hotel. I believe he gives Danny a kiss. And, no, you know what? You're right. He kisses Wendy and says, kiss and kiss, and that's what I've been missing. So it never was a father-son thing. No. <laughs> I don't know. This is so cheesy. Don't you want to be a little afraid? Did we really want to end with heartfelt? Even if they had done it well, is this even the right impulse to end with everyone happy? Now, I thought about it. It is kind of true, and I do think it's part of King's popularity that he always has a slightly upbeat ending. I mean, I can't ever think of a book where it ended in complete tragedy, where every character died, where all hope was lost. There usually is a survivor. There usually is a child survivor at that. I guess it's fitting that they would want to end on a note, a ray of of light, but come on. My God, this is, you don't go this far with it. I mean, this is beyond cheesy. It's also very much the difference between 1977 King and 1997 King. King was far more nihilistic in his early years, and we will see some that never have happy endings at the end. There are usually some where good wins out, but especially as Bachman, he could be dark. And by the time he sobered up and was a multi-multi-millionaire living on top of the world with a big smile on his face, yeah, Schmaltz was kind of in. That's when we started getting hearts in Atlantis and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a stunning way to end a stunning TV miniseries. The other thing that shocked me, I, I kind of had a Rage Carry 2 moment, because after that, they go back again 10 years later to the Overlook, and they just left the wreckage there. Just still <laughs> yes. sitting there, just like Carrie, too. Yeah, in, in this area that is so beaten by the elements. But no, it's just sitting there like hasn't snowed a day in the last 10 years. But that's because in six months, it's all going to be rebuilt. That's what I don't get. They're like, coming soon. We're bringing back the Overlook Hotel. We just saw the smoldering wreckage there. Right. Did they build <laughs> the hotel just somewhere else and they're just leaving that wreckage there? No, I think they're going to clear the wreckage and build a new one. But. Are the ghosts in the walls? Are the ghosts in the foundation? I mean, how deep do you have to dig to kill the ghosts? <laughs> I think one three-night miniseries should be enough. I don't think we're coming back to the Overlook in this way, anyway. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Stephen King's The Shining? Jacob. I think it's pretty obvious. I, I want to go back to that Carrie TV miniseries before I ever have to sit through this again. I mean, so much of this, again, I get it. There is a dramatic angle to this story. There's a story about alcoholism and a family that isn't isolated from each other like in Kubrick's vision. Here's a family that's trying to get it together, trying to make it work after some bad events early on because of the father being an alcoholic. There's a story there, but not here, not the way it's presented. What we get on screen was just... We skip so much because it's just dialogue that goes on and on and on, and it really, there's no payout for it. This is a badly written TV miniseries. I, I mean, Arnie, I listened to your books and nachos about The Shining. I, I got a friend who loves The Shining. I, I was almost convinced to go read it. And then I saw this. If this is King's vision, I don't know. I don't know. That, that plays bad for his book. If this is his endorsed work that he had such a heavy hand in, you know, writing it, producing it, even directing a lot of it. That's bad for him. It, it makes that story look bad from an outsider like myself. When it comes to The Shining 1997, you could be missing this. That, that's going to be my <laughs> recommendation. Let it be missing, not recommended. Stuart. Oh, I'm going to blow a few air kisses at it because it is hilarious. <laughs> I cannot believe. I have read Stephen King's novel. And if, if I were the author of that book and then someone showed me this movie, I would burst into tears. I would cry at what they had done to my work. 
that he would be so irate at Kubrick's, admittedly, you know, manipulation of the material and extrapolation, but claimed that this was worthy of emblazoning his name upon. It's not that he doesn't know. I'd like to believe that deep down Stephen King knows this is a turd ball. But I think you're <laughs> right. It, it was a personal story and he just needed it to be told. And it's just delusional. I mean, it's, it's the very definition of a vanity project. We see this happen all the time. Usually when people win awards, then they use their clout and they go make the movie they've always wanted to and it's the worst film they're ever involved in this is sort of the equivalent of this that Stephen King had racked up enough points you know he had been given enough rope to hang himself and here he just really is exposed as yeah he just ruins his own book he ruins his reputation as a master of horror it's a really a hard fall and I would hope at this point he would recognize that this was a very clumsy silly I mean I don't have to say anything negative about this movie I think it speaks for itself I don't even need to say another bad word about the acting, the production, any of that. Take five minutes, any five minutes of this movie and watch it, and you'll know. It's it's not about comparing it with Kubrick. At the end of the day, Kubrick, I think that movie is wonderful, flaws and all. It's its own thing. It's not that it's not in the same race as Kubrick. This doesn't even have any wheels. This is a disaster. It's just the strongest of not recommends. I mentioned there's a lot of cameos, especially in Act 3. One of them is Stephen King himself. And he's playing a band leader of the GC band. And that's supposed to be Gage Creed, who's the little kid from Pet Cemetery. When you see Stephen King there with this glued-on, pencil-thin mustache, pasty white ghost face, white tuxedo, swinging his hands all around, I'm like, you know, I know Stephen King played in a band, a band of authors that went on a tour. But he doesn't know crap about conducting. He's just waving his hand around. My sister is a professional conductor who has toured nationally. I know at least the rhythm of conducting. And he's waving it around like he's saying abracadabra. I almost think that that's like the epitome of The Shining. He can be a masterful, masterful author. But here, he's just waving his hands around and looking really foolish for doing so. He mentions on the commentary how he wants to direct again. He thinks he can do better than his one directorial effort, <laughs> Maximum Overdrive. He wants to... <laughs> We're getting to it. I'm going to scare the hell out of you again! <laughs> he he wants to actually take classes in film and then direct. I like that part. Yes. Study. Maybe watch a few Kubrick movies. <laughs> but I just can't help but think because of his omnipresence atmosphere on set he did direct again after maximum overdrive and it was this and mick garris let it happen and what i'm thinking about is yeah i love this book and i watch this and jacob i hear what you say about how this is influencing your opinion of what the book could be and that is terrible worse than what king thinks the kubrick film has done to his book is what this has done. And I, I'm like, he sued to get his name taken off the Lawnmower Man. When it was put out, it was Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man on the posters and everything. And when it came out on video, it was just The Lawnmower Man. You couldn't really find his name. I was wondering if he could sue to have his name taken off this because he really would benefit without his name plastered all over the thing. But his fingerprints are deeply ingrained in it. I mean, but truthfully, Alan Smithy's The Shining would be better for him than Stephen King's The Shining. I think the real big problem with this is The Shining should never have been a miniseries. 
And if it was, it never should have been three nights. It is too long to take a small story and drag it out. You take The Stand, which in its unabridged edition is over 1,200 pages hardcover, and you make it four nights. You take this little 400-page book and you make it three? That is greed. That is, we want this to be a ratings bonanza for as many nights as we can. The story's pacing is antithetical to a miniseries pacing. A miniseries should have consistent events occurring in each act. The Shining is one that builds like that metaphorical boiler in the basement, and you need to care about the characters to see the doom coming and building over time. But what's going to happen is exactly what did happen. The first night's ratings were good, and they got pretty beat up after that. People didn't return. I, a Stephen King fan you might even say bordering on fanatic, didn't return. I didn't watch Nights 2 and 3 until I had to for this. So no, it's a not recommend. I still think that you could do a faithful adaptation of The Shining to a movie, to a two to two and a half hour format where it is more psychological drama. I don't think you'll ever recapture the atmosphere of Kubrick's. That is Kubrick's own take on this. But it could be done. But in this format where everybody's got the shadow of Mickey Mouse ears above their head? No, it's a very, very strong not recommend. And truthfully, I do think that if it's going to make people think that this is the book, that every copy should be smashed with a hammer, and that the agreement to not have North American distribution is actually a blessing in disguise for the less people who see this is best for King's original manuscript. And yeah, you cannot overstate the miscasting of Stephen Weber. Rebecca de Mornay, the kid, Tony, none of them are good. Nobody here is doing their best work. I think Rebecca's pissed off because she's on television just a few years out from the hand that rocks the cradle. I think Stephen Weber is worried about where his paycheck's coming when Wing ends. At least it has syndication money. But Weber specifically is so miscast, and it is lowest common denominator. They would have been better to have open casting calls nationwide to find an unknown than to bring in him. So no, strong not recommend, and I also think that this really shows Never Trust TV Guide because this got the first 10 out of 10 TV Guide rating. What? ABC paid someone off. What do you mean, 10 out of 10 what? Like, a 10 rating out of a 10 scale. Oh my god. Man. Their review no. of it was a perfect score. Money exchanged hands. I, I'm with Jacob on that. That's, yeah. Let's dig into the basement of TV Guide and find out what ghosts are down there because, yeah, somebody got paid off. It's silly. I mean, again, I don't even feel like I need to make a strong case for it. The movie does just fine declaring how awful it is in almost every frame. It's torrentially bad. Eesh. I would say that Kubrick's was the defining shining, that there could never be any more, but... Now there's a sequel book. You can hear my reviews out now on Books and Nachos, and it has nothing to do with this TV version, I'll be happy to say that. You can hear all my thoughts in that spoiler-free review at booksandnachos.com. We may be back to cover it. Who knows? It's obviously got movie rights that have been purchased, and we'll see if they can develop it as a film or, God help us, a miniseries. Hey, Cortland Mead isn't working right now. <laughs> Or would you prefer the guy who did Tony? (laughs) 
I would prefer the the kid from the Kubrick one, who's apparently now a, a botanist or something. <laughs> He's a scientist. He got out of acting, and I think he would do a better job. But there is a competing project. It should be said that Warner Brothers has been very desperate. In all of these reboot times, they have commissioned a prequel script to the Kubrick film. What they would like to do is go back and tell the story of those ghosts that we saw fleetingly, the woman in room 237, the twins. As long as they talk about the bare-ass dog, that's all I care about. I need some answers there. (laughs) I think all of that would come up. I think, pity the writer assigned that project. I wouldn't begin to know how to tell a definitive story. But yeah, the idea would be to go back to that mood and that vibe and basically get someone... I don't know, Christopher Nolan or David Fincher or someone with a Kubrick sensibility to tell what happened at the Overlook before the Torrances arrived. What do you guys think about that? I'd say the devil's in the details. Who's writing it? Who's directing it? I, I, I could see going back there. I could see, let us know about who this dark manager that's behind everything. Delve into that. I, I think there's something interesting there, but it all comes down to who's actually doing this film. They made Pet Cemetery 2. They can do anything. I don't think it has a hope in hell of being good. I just don't. I think that it would be too restricted by what we already know or too dismissive of what we already know. Yeah, that's what I go with. I think Kubrick's work doesn't tell us much anyway, so I don't see the restrictions there. As long as there's a dog giving a blowjob, that's the one requirement you got to meet. Isn't that your plans for every Friday night, Jacob? <laughs> <laughs> I almost feel like it could ruin it, though. You know, the the mystery of it. I, I, I go back to Prometheus. I spent so many years thinking about what it might have been looking at those mysteries. To have definitive answers that aren't satisfying, it can leave a really bitter aftertaste. I think leave it well enough alone. I think that there's plenty of other ways to adapt a Stephen King novel. I'd actually be more cool with a reboot, I think than them trying to find answers to Kubrick's intentional mysteries. I think that that's a fool's game. But I'd watch it opening night, of course. I'd be there with bated breath, hoping that I was wrong. And then we'd be talking about it the next morning, (laughs) right here on the podcast. (laughs) The idea of a prequel, I think, is kind of a flawed concept. Not always. Not always, but I think most of the time, the answers, the backstory you've created in your head, the way Darth Vader for me became Darth Vader is better than Lucas accomplished, better than anything you'd be able to do. Same with what Kubrick did. The way I filled in the gaps is, it's just, it's going to be more satisfying to me than getting a definitive answer. I, I think that's a fatal flaw of prequels. Our imaginations will typically do better than what Hollywood will turn out. I agree, and I do think, like I said in my summation, you could make a good Shining movie. I think that doing a reboot and trying to tell a scary-as-hell, dramatic, tense Shining would work away from the restrictions of network television. If you went a hard R and got a good cast, you could make a version of The Shining that, I think like Carrie, I don't know that the new version will eclipse De Palma's in cinematic history. I think it probably won't because it did come later. But you could make one that will stand well on its own for a new generation who doesn't like to go back and see older films with older actors and tell this story concisely unlike the way King did. King's book has yet to have justice done on screen, which doesn't take away from the fact that Kubrick's film is an amazing, suspenseful horror piece of cinema. Yeah, I just don't feel like you can do it. I think it's one of those rare cases where, it's like Wizard of Oz. It didn't follow the book either, and there were moments in the book that 
They did not film. That said, would you want a new version where, you know, Dorothy grabs some attacking crows and cracks it in its neck? It's defined by the movie, and I feel like this is just one of those cases where The Shining is Kubrick's. It has moved beyond King. I'm sorry. I know this is a Stephen King retrospective, but it will always be a Stanley Kubrick movie that Stephen King originated. I think that we can agree in this. For those who saw the film first, it will always be that. For those who read the book first, it will always be a Stephen King book that Stanley Kubrick didn't do justice to. And and I've read that a lot of people that are fans of that book, that read that book first before ever seeing Kubrick's film, maybe they're not as staunch as King is for his hate for that film, but there are a lot that want to see that book done right on film. I'm not one of them, but I have read there are those groups. They want to see King's vision done right. And I'm happy just reading it on the page. You can again hear that review at booksandnachos.com. But this brings our Shining Retrospective series to a close, and we're going to take a break from King for a while. We will be picking him back up next year, but the holiday season is upon us, and if two movies of snowbound horror don't evoke the feeling of the holidays, I don't know what does. Maybe Gremlins, or Gremlins 2. Why not? You know, we like to do, we did Black Christmas, we did Silent Night, Deadly Night, six of those. We've got to do the Christmas horror Spielberg 80s movie that has been heavily requested, I should add. Uh, Gremlins, let's go back. So we'll be doing that for the next two weeks. So Jacob Stewart, thank you again for joining me. And until next time, let's take a break because all podcasting and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. All my friends are here. You have friends everywhere in the Overlook, Mr. Torrance. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King Shining novel, as well as the 2013 sequel, Doctor Sleep. There is something that wants us to join the party. Don't you understand that? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new King movie review. Come play with us. Forever. And ever. And ever. 
In the archives section of our website, you can find reviews of other Stephen King movie series such as Carrie and Salem's Lot. You can also hear reviews of other films such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. You'd do better just to listen, Mr. Torrance. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. It's amazing how fast you get used to such a big place. I tell you, when we first came up here, I thought it was kind of scary. <laughs> I fell in love with it right away. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Every good time. Yes, Dad. Good. I want you to have a good time. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. But if you help me the way Danny's been helping me, then we can get through this. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd, because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there till next April. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. I've got something for you you're not going to find in any of those boxes, if you want it. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Here's Johnny! Now Playing's The Shining retrospective series is edited by Phil, Dylan, and Arnie. Ever thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract, in which I have accepted that responsibility? You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Now playing credit narration by Brock. You keep pouring, and you can say anything you like, big boy. The Shining films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I see you can hardly have taken care of the business we discussed. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Words of wisdom, Lloyd. Words of wisdom. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced repurposed or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. Kissing, kissing. Yeah, that's what I've been missing. Gentlemen, I think the party's over. Red Rock! That creepy old lady in room 237, or in this one, 217. I wish it had been room 227.
We get Jackie! <laughs> Mary, I'm coming to kill you! And Rob! Hit and record. Now, we usually record for the length of the movie, right? So this is going to be a uh, four-hour, almost five-hour recording? Mm-hmm. If that's what you want to say. As long as I can take <laughs> frequent naps. <laughs> I'm just talking to Tony. <laughs> that's why my eyes are rolled back and I'm drooling. <laughs> oh, boy. Red Rock! Oh, this is my wrong nose. I had the nose up for Kubrick. Can we just record that again? <laughs> I got two more hours on that I'd much rather talk about. Red Rock! Directed by Mick Garris. How could you forget that name? We're only going to see eight more of his movies. <laughs> All Stephen King shits. And Rock!